0: our desire to be like Christ. That's a picturesque way of thinking of that. Stamp thine own image deep on my heart. That is a call for the Lord to do a deep work in us that we reflect Christ in every aspect of our lives. If we are growing and becoming Christ-like in the inner man, certainly that will show itself in the outer man as well. And so thankful for that opportunity to sing of that. Well, we are back in Habakkuk today. Habakkuk, this prophet that we really know very little about. We know his name means embrace. We know he's a prophet. And from what we can tell from this prophecy, it seems like he was a prophet at a very um, decisive point in Israel's history and Judah's history as the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are strengthening And they are becoming the dominant world power, and it won't be too long after this prophecy. And maybe Habakkuk witnessed this. Like the prophet Jeremiah, Babylon would take Judah captive, would (laughs) enslave them and take them back to Babylon uh, with them and destroy their home country. Uh, A severe chastisement indeed from the Lord But these were people that were far from God. And, you know, it's interesting. I I mentioned this as a side note. I mentioned that we don't know much about Habakkuk. This prophecy, this book, had such an impression upon the Jewish people. All the scripture did. But this seems to have made such an impression that you remember those apocryphal books we talked about in the the time between the uh, Old and the New Testament that were written? Some of the Jewish information about the Jewish uh, happenings in history were helpful, but they actually named, there's a book called Bell and the Dragon, uh, and Habakkuk is named and given part in that book, almost as if people, the Jewish people wanted more information about him, so they kind of added it in their literature, because they just didn't know much about him uh, at the time, or the, the book doesn't tell us much, but he was obviously a revered figure, uh, even though we don't know much today. But we do see a faithful man who is concerned about the wickedness around him, right? And that's how we started this series a couple weeks ago with Habakkuk looking in Judah. And after the changes in the, the godly king Josiah had made to the nation, uh, Josiah had died in battle, and things had just deteriorated. Wicked kings, Jehoiakim that had literally um, cut up Jeremiah's scroll had had prophets killed, and everything is just going downhill, deteriorating. And Habakkuk looks at the wickedness around his own people and says, how long, O oh Lord? And how can you look at this and be silent? You need to do something. And what was God's response, as we saw last week? He said, Habakkuk, I'm doing something. I'm actually in the process of working something right now. Something that's going... To be beyond your expectations, certainly. That bitter, that cruel nation, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians as we know them today, are ramping up. And I am empowering them to literally take over the world and take over Judah as well and deliver punishment for Judah's sins. And he described, remember the description we had last week, that vivid description of a strong Bitter, angry, but fully confident nation that laughed at kings that mocked all authorities that ran over them, that to destroy nations and destroy kingdoms were literally child's play to them, and then instead of obviously God was allowing these things instead of recognizing the true God, the God of Israel, they worshipped themselves in their own might. And God seemingly was going to allow them to do this. And folks, whatever Habakkuk wanted is an answer. That was not it. That's not what he wanted. I think what Habakkuk may have wanted was this. Lord, just tell him to stop. Tell him to stop being so bad. And, and maybe, you know, sickness or famine or, or something, But not a cruel enemy nation that would conquer our nation and enslave us. And we're going to see today, this gives Habakkuk more questions. Lord, how can this be? Because Habakkuk knows the character of God very well. As we see in verse, we're going to start at verse 12 today. He understands who God is. And his question is, how could a pure and righteous God allow a wicked and arrogant enemy to subdue Jude, or Habakkuk views Judah as God's righteous people. And in his dismay and concern, Habakkuk could have a lot of choices in, in how he responds after he gives his complaints to God, but he does the right thing. When we're troubled over God's workings in the world around us, and even God's work in our own lives, Habakkuk's going to show us what really is the only option for us what must be the thing that we do. And that is wait on God and trust in him. Let's see today, standing at the watch post. Let's read through verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for proof. That makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Lord, thank you for... This passage and reminder that you will allow things into our, time, into our lives that will at times perplex us, confuse us, and maybe discourage us. And yet, we're going to be reminded through the rest of this book that you have a purpose for all of these things that you allow into our lives. That fate does not have a place in the Christian worldview. Because you are sovereign, and all things that you do are for a purpose, for your glory, and for our growth as your people. And so, Father, even let us be encouraged today, as we follow the example of Habakkuk, how he gives his complaint, goes to you, and then waits and trusts. Help us to do the same. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Babylonians are coming. God made that clear, and they will do the work of chastising for the evil of God's people in Judah. And remember that evil had gone as far as false worship, where there was child sacrifice involved, where there was alliances with other evil nations. And it was kind of like with Judah; it was okay for them to align themselves with a couple of these evil nations, but. We don't want our God involved in in bringing them toward us and aligning, in a sense, with them against us, certainly. But they had rejected him as their God. They had rejected Yahweh. And so God said, correction, discipline is coming. It's coming soon. You watch, Habakkuk. Watch the world scene. That cruel nation will come and deal with my people. And so Habakkuk obviously is concerned, is bothered, is surprised, and we're going to see that in this passage today. Standing at the watch post, and we'll see what that means as well. First of all, God's people struggle when evil seems triumphant. I said seems on purpose, but folks, when evil seems triumphant, remember God's characters and promises can still be trusted, and we must trust in his word. That's where he has given us the information about who he is and his promises. And so when difficult things come into our lives that don't sync with what we, how we think God should act, remember from God's word who he is and his promises. And Habakkuk in verse 12 reminds us he's well studied. He is articulate, you could say, in theology. He knows God well. He knows well the character of his God, of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so beginning at verse 12, are you not from everlasting? And that's not a question there. That is a a question that he, in essence, is a question that he knows he's giving the answer to. So he is confident in this. Lord, you are from everlasting. And the Hebrew for that word everlasting actually means literally from eternity past. And so in context, that means as well, God, you are from eternity past. You've always been. That also means that you always will be. You are everlasting. You're eternal. You're forever. And I know that, God. I know that about you. And we must recognize that as well. Think about the difference in perspectives with one who has been here for all eternity. And for those of us who will only be here for a brief moment, just a vapor. We get all upset and we many times we want to question God who is from everlasting we have to remind ourselves folks that he is the one that has the full perspective really, it's, it's really kind of foolish right for those of us that are literally around for a few years to question the God of all eternity he knows his plan he knows what he's doing and Habakkuk recognizes that Lord you're from everlasting this whole thing It's because of you. It's a part of your plan. Oh, Lord, my God. And he recognizes, as we must as well, that for those today that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of calling the God of the universe, the God of eternity, our God. Each of us can say, my God, he's mine. Because I'm in relationship with him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is my father. And my father is loving and loyal. And Habakkuk points that out as well. You're my God, my holy one. My God shows that he's in a covenant relationship with his people, that he will show loyal love to them. But he's also the holy one. This describes the one in whom power and purity makes him uniquely separate from his creation. He's all-powerful. He's holy, he's pure, he's the opposite of sin, and he is unique from his creation. Habakkuk knows all of these things. And he also knows that because of this, God has made promises to his people, and he will not abandon those promises. One of those promises is, in this context, that there will always be a people of God. That make sense? And so he says, we shall not die. But folks, we understand the greater aspect of that is it truly is that the people of God are also a spiritual people. There is a people of God uh, of Israel that will be sustained and uh, will continue on into the eternal kingdom. But there is a spiritual people that all of us must have relationship with Christ. And whether we're Jew or Gentile, we will not die in everlasting life because God has promised it. Now, here's an interesting thing, though. I have to address this quickly, but it does need to be addressed. There is a translation issue here. We shall not die, as in most of your translations, but I believe the NIV says, you shall not die. Well, that's a little bit of a difference. I don't know if anybody has an NIV, but I figured at least one person might, and that might be a little concerning. But what is is going on here? Well, just briefly, remember... Um, we had the originals um, and the copies of the Hebrew Scriptures, um, which was the original language that the, the Old Testament Scriptures was translated in, and um, some Arabic as well. But uh, some early copies of the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text that we have today, translates as "You shall not die." And most of the majority of the texts that we have today say, we will not die. What's the difference? Well, some feel, and this would happen at times, some of the Hebrew scribes would look at that, uh, at statements about God, and in some of the copies, they would be concerned, or or the scribes that were um, writing these copies of Scripture, they would be concerned that something was written that was blasphemous. And so it seems as if um, those copies where it says, you shall not die, and then today we have multiple copies, we shall not die. One one explanation is that some scribes were concerned and said, you can't have a phrase here that says God shall not die. So they changed that to we shall not die. Now, I don't think that's the best explanation. I think the best explanation is is that the majority of the manuscripts make it clear that we shall not die is the proper way to translate that. And so we have that in our scriptures today and that goes along well with the context that Habakkuk's giving here. Now it is true that God will not die. That is a truth. And so either way, the truth of God is not affected. But the, in context because we know God is everlasting, he's our God, he's the holy one, he will be true to his covenant promises and his people will live on. And that is what Habakkuk is drawing confidence from. He knows. And he says, God, I know that you will be faithful to the promises of your people. And yet, even though I know this, what you've said and what we're about to experience seems at odds against that. How can that be? Because, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. Well, who are the them? That is the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Father, we are your people, and you've ordained this wicked, cruel nation to bring judgment on us. You have planned it. Um, you basically has the idea of you've assigned to this evil nation the task of bringing judgment to your people. How can that be? And you, this is interesting, O rock, that description of God as the rock of Judah had the idea that he is where they would go to find their refuge, that they could hide from the storm from him. And he says, Lord, you're our rock. And how can you then assign and set up this evil nation to bring us reproof? In other words, that that um, Hebrew word reproof literally means pronouncing his people guilty and sentencing them. Habakkuk says, if you are supposed to be our refuge, our rock, How can you let this cruel, evil nation come and pronounce judgment and sentence us to enslavement? That doesn't make sense. And, folks, we have to remember God's character and promises can be trusted, but God's sovereignty in times of trouble must be trusted. When things don't make sense to us, just like they did with Habakkuk, we still have to trust God. But he continues. You who are pure eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors, at treacherous people, literally, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The prophet can't, and we say today, sink these two in technology terms. He can't sink the fact God is holy. God is the essence of perfect divine holiness. He's the holy one. He cannot tolerate sin, even to describe it as not even looking on it. It's detestable to him. And Habakkuk knows this. And yet, he's going to allow a treacherous pagan people to swallow up and completely subdue his own, and Habakkuk refers to them as righteous people. Well, he may be uh, slightly had a loftier opinion of the people, but Habakkuk knew their sin. Why would he describe these people as righteous when we started out the book with his complaint against their evil? What does he mean? I think in context here, he's referring to God's people as God's covenant people who, even at their worst, are not as cruel and hateful um, and devouring as these enemy nations I think that's kind of what his mindset is here. These people are pagans, Lord. They don't even know you. They're cruel. They they just devour people. They destroy nations. Your people don't do that. They do a lot of other really bad things, but they don't do those things. And, folks, don't we tend to look at the world around us and see all the bad things that they do a lot of times? Why, why do you allow them to be successful? And, and we forget about the old things that we struggle with that God is using those outward things to draw us and purify us and make us more like Christ. Many times, as much as we look at the wickedness around us and are despairing, folks, we should be probably more concerned about the tendencies, you know, like David, the tendencies within. And say, Lord, please use these things to purify me. But we all have times where we slip. Or we despair, or we're frustrated. So we can fully understand, right? Habakkuk's complaint here. I mean, Habakkuk knew of his people's great sin. He he experienced it. He described it. But surely they are better than these severe, arrogant tyrants. Well, the next thing Habakkuk does. Is he recognizes the fact that God's enemies rejoice when evil seems triumphant? I use the word seems again. And that God's enemies rejoice in opposition to his people. Here is a very practical and understandable illustration that Habakkuk gives in the next few verses of a successful fishing expedition. My boys know of that. A couple times now they've been out and they've pulled in a couple of big fish. Not as many as we'd like. We're hoping still this summer to have some time, but it is exciting. To pull in, you spend all the time getting all the equipment together, going out in the boat, and all these things, and uh, putting the line out. And they pull in a nice fish, and it's a bit of a struggle, but it's satisfying. It's exciting, right? Well, that's great. The only problem is in Habakkuk's story, it's God's enemies are the ones that are having the fishing success. That's not so exciting. That's really problematic. And he described basically this description here, verses 14 and 15. You could say it like this It's like God stocked his fish pond with his people, and his enemies had discovered it and are taking all the fish or stealing them. And he's letting them do it. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea and like crawling things that have no ruler. This is then a broader perspective, not just of God's people, but of the world in general. And then these wicked Chaldeans come along. Verse 15, he brings up all of them with a hook. He's successful and and brings up um, a good portion of these fish. He drags them out with his net. Now, again, I think we know this, but we're not talking about fishing poles, right? Modern day fishing. I think they still use nets in some parts of the world as well. This probably had reference to a very specific method of fishing that included nets and block and tackle where you would cast the nets out. And then with your equipment, you would pull them back in. That has the idea of the hook and the drag net. Um, We really don't have an example of what this would have looked like, but we can get a pretty good idea as they throw these nets out. And here are the wicked throwing out these nets into the fish of the sea that include God's people, and they're having great success, and they're pulling in. They're skilled fishermen who are rejoicing in their catch of the people of the world, including God's people. They're having great success, and so at the end of verse 15, he rejoices and is glad. Now, this is interesting. These are words in the Hebrew, the words of worship. These are worshipful words. That he rejoices to the point where he is exalting someone, and he is glad. He is glad to exalt. Well, who are they exalting? We find that out in verse 16 as this language of worship continues. God's enemies offer false worship many times right in the middle, right before their people um, to make matters worse. And therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. God, the God of Israel, is allowing these enemies to fish in his stocked fish pond, so to speak. They're having success. And who do they give the credit to and exalt? Themselves. And not even really themselves as much as their tools. Has the idea of false worship here. The very tools that they're using that they have to exert in order to pull this fish in. then they foolishly worship those tools. Thank you, net. Thank you, dragnet. Thank you, tools, for providing us this fish we're so happy and worshipful. Let's, let's worship our nets. The foolishness of man. And remember, we saw in Colossians that, or in the book of Titus, that only God's people with the wisdom of the Spirit have true wisdom. Everything else is foolishness. And these people, as successful as they are, they're foolish in their false worship, and yet they live a luxurious lifestyle. They continue to have success and continue to live in luxury. Um, Both of these words, luxury and his food is rich, in the next sentence has the idea basically of getting fat. They're getting fat with their success, Lord. Hagan, cruel people who are oppressing your righteous people who are having success and are offering up false worship and rejoicing and being glad, and they keep being successful. Lord, how can that happen when you're the Holy One, when you're everlasting, when you have made promises to your people as their refuge? How can he, verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net? Are you going to continue to give him success? And mercilessly killing nations forever? How long, God, will you allow the enemy success Will he continue to allow a lack of benevolence and mercy, their tyranny, to continue forever? Habakkuk knows his theology. What's his problem, though, in this? His perspective, again, is too limited. He's the prophet of um, the moment, and he's addressing the God of eternity. And what he sees in the moment he can't sync with what God is doing through his plan through all eternity. And it's frustrating to him. And in this moment, he says, God, this doesn't make sense to me. What do you do then when God and what he's doing in your life doesn't make sense to you? To you. What do you do? Well, I can tell you in my experience what I've been tempted to do, what I've seen other people do, is get angry. Get Get bitter. Just say I'm I'm just gonna stop serving God altogether. I'm stop going to church. Or maybe people continue to go to church, but they just say, I'm done. I'm done being all in for God. I'm gonna pursue my own things. Because this whole serving, I serve God faithfully, and what do I get from it? Doesn't make sense, these things. And it seems like even people in my church are successful and they do things against me, and, and God doesn't give me what I think I deserve. And so I'm just, I'm not going to serve committedly anymore. Or maybe they go talk with other people and they grumble and complain about what God does in their lives rather than see the goodness of God. Maybe even to a secular work environment or something, they complain about God. And maybe they're a poor example because they can't figure God out. Folks, I think we understand all of those options are the wrong options. We can't give in to our emotions when God doesn't make sense to us. But we must do what Habakkuk did. Can you you tell here that Habakkuk's frustrated? Can you sense his his anger and his concern? Well, what does he do? Chapter 2, verse 1. He's deeply concerned and confused about what God is going to allow his people to go through. But he goes to the watch post. Well, what is this? The picture of Habakkuk's giving here is of a military watchman that would go, his responsibility was to go to his outpost at the top of the fortress where he could see a long ways, um, probably built on top of a hill. He could see way out in the distance, peering into the distance, no, no binoculars or anything like that at this time. But you had a pretty good view, you know, in, in the desert areas, you could see the dust coming up of the approaching people, horses or whatever. And he was looking for any advancing opposition forces that he would then go and prepare and warn the people and warn the military. They're coming. They're coming. Get ready. Now, some have read this and said, hmm, was this the prophet's side job? Was he also a watchman? Was he um, responsible, a civil servant getting ready for his next watch time? He's talking to the Lord, looks at his watch. All of a sudden, oh, Lord, it's time for me to get up to the watch post, put on my military outfit, and look out for the enemy. probably not. But he, this picture that he's giving is what he's doing in his heart, folks. This is a figurative, I think, illustration of what he was preparing to do in his heart. God had given the prophet his word, right? The prophet didn't understand it. The prophet had responded and told God, I don't understand this, Lord. It doesn't make sense to me. But now in my heart, I'm going to go to the watch post. I'm going to station myself, and I'm going to wait until you give me your response in your providential time. No more complaining, Lord. I'm just going to wait on you, serve you faithfully, and I know in your time, you will let me know. Folks, that is always the way to handle things when life doesn't make sense, is to wait. Now, one difference here. As the messenger of God's word, the prophet in Habakkuk, the same, was submitted to God's time frame. He basically was at the mercy of whenever God would give him his word. So literally, Habakkuk had to wait to hear back from God. And he will hear back from God. But today, folks, we do have God's fully revealed word, right, for us to proclaim today. And so, in essence, we don't have to wait for the next word from God because we have all of his word. And we can act on it. What a blessing that is. But we still have to wait on his timing and direction. Even when the spiritual bullies seem to be their most incentive. I don't remember if I've told this story before, but I grew up in many places in Michigan. My family eventually moved to Florida. Growing up in high school, I lived in the southwest corner of Michigan in a little town called Three Rivers. And it was named because three rivers flowed into the center of the town. And there was one of these um, where there was a large bridge that went over, cars could drive over. And some of the more foolish teenagers would actually, it was probably a good 25 feet or more in height, and some of the more foolish teenagers would actually get on top and jump off into the water and hope that they got the shallow spot. That never seemed like an exciting adventure to me. Um, But what we would do is we would play under the bridge, or we would get tubes, and we would tube under this river, and we would go out into, into the other river. And one time, it was just me and a friend, and we had our bikes, and we were on one side. We were underneath the bridge on one side of the river, and there was a large group of kids that looked a little bit bigger than us, both girls and guys, and they were having fun on the other side. And so we were just kind of minding our own business. I, I don't remember I'm sure we were doing maybe look, picking up rocks looking for crayfish, and all of a sudden those kids saw us on the other side, and we found out that they weren't exactly a friendly group of young people because they came over and it was shallow enough. They were able to walk across flashing, and we heard things like, Let's get them, let's get their bikes. And I looked to my friend, and he looked at me and was like, These guys aren't funny, this isn't a good situation. And so we did what anybody would do. We got on our bikes and we started pedaling. And the problem, part of the problem was, was that uh, my friend was a faster bike rider than I was. And he quickly, or actually, he, I know what it was. Give myself a little credit here. His bike was closer. That's what it was. And he got on his bike, and he took off, leaving me behind, of course, as any good friend will do. He was just making sure that he was okay. He did look behind, I think, once, checking on me. He was off. And there I was trying to run, and I saw these kids getting closer. And all of a sudden, I got to my bike, but not in time. I got on the seat. I was about ready to push that pedal down, and they got to me, and they grabbed my bike. They pushed me off. And they victoriously carried it off back to wherever they came from, and I was humiliated, very upset. And I walked to my friend, who at that point had gotten far enough away that he was safe. They were walking away, and he then he waited for me. Mm -hmm. I said, "Thanks a lot for nothing." He said, "Well, what was I going to do? I couldn't help you, and they were they would just got my back." All right. Well, I was frustrated, angry. How could? these bullies be allowed to just take somebody's bike just for their own pleasure, mean, cruel. We got to the side of that bridge, the end of the bridge there where it came back down and we were headed home. All of a sudden, I saw this pretty large African-American man coming up the bridge and down and he was doing something strange. He was walking a bike. I thought, like, well, why is walking a bike? Why isn't he And as I looked closer, it looked like some a bike that was familiar and I looked closer and realized, that's my bike. And he came down the side, and he said, this is your bike, isn't it? I said, yes, sir, it sure is. He said, well, here you go. And I took off, and I thanked him profusely, and we took off, and I had my bike back. I never found out what happened, but I do know this. I thought I was in the midst of a no-win situation with a bunch of bullies where I had no control, and I didn't have any control over it. But at the right time, there was a guy who was bigger than me, who did have something to say, who was watching. And he intervened in my moment of trauma and helped me out. Not aware. I was angry and I was bothered. And I had no idea the whole time that he was dealing with my situation and was able to bring my bike back to me. Folks, that's what we have to realize when evil people are seeming to have success in our lives, in our world, that there is a person that is bigger than us. He's eternal. He's the holy one. He's watching and he will act in his time for our benefit and his glory. So what do we do? We trust. God's work in our world today can acknowledge this as still many times complex and mysterious to us. Why does he do that? Why is that allowed in my life? Why is this person not taken out of my life? Why are these circumstances hand, uh, uh, the, or, or coming about in the way that they are, folks? When these things happen, we have to trust and give our burdens over to Him, just like Habakkuk did. Give our complaints to the Lord. Let Him know how we feel. Be ready for an answer, and wait. But we, because we have all of his word, we can continue to serve faithfully until God answers us and gives us direction on what to do next. We serve him faithfully while waiting on his timing and his word. Folks, can we trust God with the fact that we do we assent to the fact that he will make all things right in his time? He will. So we trust him in that and wait and serve faithfully. Father, thank you for in the midst of Habakkuk's frustration, his end response was to leave it all with you, to wait, serve faithfully, and to recognize that you have a greater timing and a perspective that goes beyond our limited perspective. But that you will not allow the bullies in our lives and in our world to have the final say. We'll see that in upcoming passages. You will make it clear. You will, in your time, deal with all things and make all things right. So, Father in the now, help us to trust that. To have confidence in you. And to not be distracted from serving you faithfully. Lord, we need your help to do this. And we have the power of Christ and the guidance of the Spirit in a way that Habakkuk never had to be able to direct us through your word. So help us to stay faithful, trusting in you, realizing you'll work things out in the end, and love you more the more for it. And this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.